Before we continue, one of the ways we keep all of our content for you, the listener, free of charge is our amazing sponsors, and today, Anchor is one of those sponsors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor is going to distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are listened to, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Good morning, you guys. We have such an incredible hour ahead of you, and I want you guys to know that we're giving a little taste of dance history, and we're going to take it back with Gene Kelly. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. Welcome on in to The Point with Kristen Burt, sponsored by Dance Network and, of course, Popcorn Talk. And we are so excited about this hour. I have to tell you, all day long I've been thinking about this, and I've been playing different clips, and I think that this is going to be a treat for all of you, and thank you for sending in all of your questions. So I want you guys to give a warm welcome to Patricia Ward-Kelly, who is the widow of Gene Kelly, but she is also his official biographer. She's an author herself. She's a public speaker. And she is just incredible. You are a wealth of information. Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I know. Just really thrilled to have you here. And I want to mention to everyone, I'm going to say this at the top of the show. We'll say it at the end of the show. But you have, and you've done this many, many times over the years, but you have a show coming up this weekend in Torrance, California. And on Saturday, October 6th, and we are going to do a giveaway of tickets for the 2 o'clock show. And the 8 p.m. show. So for our Southern California fans, um, we are going to be doing it on social media, on my Instagram account, immediately after this show. So come and join us. Enter. It's going to keep it super simple. And we hope you can go and see Patricia live in person. That'll be great. It's a very personal show. Very personal look into the life. And Gene in front of the camera and Gene behind the camera. You know, I want to say something because I think that this is so important. We forget sometimes about who came before us. And you are really the walking, talking, encyclopedia, museum, you name it, for Gene Kelly and keeping his legacy alive. Was this something that he really wanted um, that you two had discussed? Or is it something that's evolved over time? Oh, no. He actually brought me out to California for that particular reason. He was so he was so upset about all of the inaccuracies and all the mythology that was out in the books and things about him. So he decided to bring me out from Washington, D.C. to write his story. And so I started interviewing him. I recorded him every day f- for almost 10 years. And uh, he ended up marrying me five years into that process. It took him a little while. To get took him some while, to... but he's like, "Oh, this is this is a good woman here." It's like finally, I was like, <laughs> but but I don't know many spouses who also recorded their spouse every single day, and so it's this kind of remarkable record of a life. And the more our relationship developed, then the more of the guard he let down because he was a very very private guy. And was very reluctant. He always kind of stayed above the surface. Very charming in interviews, but to really dip down, um, I, I always say you had to marry him to get that story. Oh, but I love that, though. And I love that you are just continuing on with his love of dance, sharing it with all of us, because it is one of those things that you watch his films. And we were just talking about Hello, Dolly, which he directed. It still holds up today. It's still as modern and contemporary and fresh and exciting as if it was just made yesterday. 
Well, it's just what's interesting about Gene, one of the things he was very specific about everything, as you can imagine. And one of the things he was very specific about was how he wished to be remembered. And people remember him in front of the camera, but they often forget that he was behind the camera as a director and as a choreographer. And that's one of the things in the show is that people don't realize he directed Hello, Dolly. They don't realize he was a director on Singing in the Rain, on the town. He directed the American Paris Ballet and and that was really what he wanted to do. He said, I, I would prefer not to have been in front of the camera, but for some reason MGM liked having him out there. So did we. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> he is a dashing figure on screen. I mean, when I sit there and you think of those handsome, rugged movie stars, I mean, Gene is always up there at the top. You know, and it's interesting. I have the model of his face that MGM used for makeup and for costumes and things, and it, it's interesting because it is so Gene, and it's absolutely the, his profile. And I look at it, and there's a great handsomeness to him. I mean, he's, I, I, I think, the most handsome. But there's also a great beauty in his face. There's a there's a real tenderness in, in his features, and I think that's what distinguishes him. I, I really don't see anybody quite like it. Um, you see the very rugged, and you see, you see others, but he had a look. And he had that... I mean, you see it on the screen, but he had that twinkle in his eye. I mean, it was really there, and that smile that just went on for miles. So it's true; it's it's one of a kind. You and when I, you always say you you can't manufacture it, whatever it is, when it comes to star quality. He was one of those people in our lifetime that you think unbelievable, and I, I think too, um, not being such a triple threat to being able to act, sing, dance obviously behind the camera, that is something that is very hard to to do in 2018. We don't see many celebrities doing that now. No, I think it's a very difficult thing. You see some directing and acting, but to direct, choreograph, perform, write, produce. I mean, he was a quadruple, quintuple, sestuple, septuple threat. And really, he understood every aspect of the process. And I think that's one thing that gets a little bit lost today, because Gene wanted to understand how that camera functioned. How does that cinematographer capture that dance? And and he, because he was a dancer himself and a choreographer, he knew how that camera had to move in order to capture the dance. And I think now that's kind of separated and and you lose something from that. I know sometimes people don't realize that dancing for the stage, dancing for the camera, completely totally different. Completely. And I was just thinking this morning, I was, I was going back and I was watching sing, segments from Singing in the Rain and I was watching that exquisite Sid Charisse ballet number duet that they did together. Pas de deux. On World Ballet Day, by the way. Um, and, I, you know, it's one of those things, like, just the scarf itself is the third dancer in that scene. And it's so stunning that I, I can't, I'm mesmerized by it. It's really, I, Sid was a beautiful, classically trained ballerina. And she had never danced jazz before she did Sing in the Rain. So it was very hard. Nowadays, most most young people study both jazz and or modern and ballet and other forms, maybe tap. But she was classically trained, and so Jean said it was very hard to get her off point and to begin to make a completely different style of movement that she does in the green dress. And then, of course, in the scarf dance, she's returned to the classical movement. And Jean had to, he said, 
choreograph the wind machines. They were the equivalent of three airplane motors um, that he had to, he went to the, I have a great photograph of him, and he's actually gesturing like this to where they should hit him with the wind so that that scarf will shoot up in the air at just the right Right time, and, and there we you go. Ha- yeah, yeah, we have it right up there on the screen. Uh, you know what I think is really interesting too. Today, um, I saw an image on social media. Beyonce has an outfit very similar to the Sid Charisse one. It's it's dark. It's not white, but she had her the fans on. She had the big sort of train in the scarf um, up there in the air, and I'm like, that is that is an image straight from Singing in the Rain. Still relevant today. It, oh, it's. Completely contemporary. I mean, that's 1952. So um, he was way ahead of his time with these things. And it's, Gene said, the torque on his body as he had to lift Sid, who was not a small woman. He had to lift her, turn her, and have the power of these three wind machines. They're called Ritter fans. Mm -hmm. And to turn and get that scarf going. So it was... You know, but so beautiful, so romantic. It was actually cut out of the movie in several countries because they figured out what he was up to. It's lovemaking. And so Spain thought it was too risque. Spain so, thought it was too risque? Yeah. I guess the Catholicism in there. <laughs> you just never know. But, I, I mean, I just look at it, and it's, of course, it's sexy, but it's it's sensual in a way that's so just beautiful and romantic to me when I watch it. Well, that's Gene. I mean, Gene always said... Less is more, and he he didn't go for the contemporary movies where you just saw this blatant um, sexual activity. He thought it was always better to have it, it sort of shielded a bit, and, and he was the true romantic. I mean, this was, that's one of the things I loved about him the most, because, I mean, he was a guy who used to uh, get so excited on Valentine's Day. It would be midnight, and I would find Valentine's sprinkled all around the house, and he'd have these little, he'd go downtown in <clears throat> in Beverly Hills to the stationery store and pick out these cards, and then he'd make funny little drawings in them and everything. So, so he's just as romantic off screen. He wasn't an act. No, no, no. He was, in fact, I think that was what was most embedded in him, uh, the poetry of the romantics, the romantic songs, things like... Rogers and Hart and Cole Porter and Gershwin. I mean, he really, that's thats who he was. That wasn't manufactured. Gosh, you're so lucky. Yeah, I, mean, what, no. I mean, what a wonderful thing. What a wonderful yeah. like way to celebrate. Because I think in relationships, especially in 2018, everyone's just so busy. You forget about some of the basic things. And romance is kind of like the foundation, too. Yeah, I, I mean, I always say this is a guy, he would wake me up just to go out on the balcony to see a full moon at night. And a moon for him represented uh, romance. And it was what he would walk along the beach or along the lake with a girl at night and and put your arm around her. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a quality. I think he, he felt was getting lost um, when he was alive. And I look around and I wonder, I wish, I wish we had a little bit more of it. Oh, I, I agree. I'm not, I don't think any woman is going to argue with that sentiment whatsoever because there is there's something about, I, I know we always get like, oh, you know, I got this. I'll ask this guy out. But we still love being swept off our feet. We still love the chivalry. I love a car door open for me. All the simple little things sometimes get lost. And I think it's it's beautiful. Gene was very, uh, he was very ahead of his time, certainly in the choreography and dance, 
but he was very much a stickler on things like black tie is black tie and that the man goes dressed in black tie but the woman is the beautiful bird in in whatever she's wearing and precedes the man and and he, it was this graciousness a kind of civility that um and integrity that he he kind of lived he he truly lived it but then you also have to know in addition i mean he was very funny and so it wasn't and it wasn't the kind of stand up comedy thing it was just that he would break me up and i would be on the floor i mean he would just come out and he'd make these funny faces or <laughs> i'd come down in the morning and he would have cut things out of the newspaper pictures of monkeys and he'd draw arrows and say you and i mean it, it, it was just it was just a sweetness a, a, a kind of innocent um kind of goofy i kind think of that's goofy good and and charming and witty and Things, um, you know, we went out to dinner once for Easter, and he had beautifully colored um, hand-dyed eggs in a basket, and they were the richest color I'd ever seen, and and this wonderful little note um, with a funny drawing of an Easter bunny on it, which was not his strongest suit of drawing. (laughs) But it was such a charming thing, and... You know, the gifts that he gave me, people always ask, you know, what did he give you? And the first gift he gave me, um, you won't even know what it is. It was a skirt lifter. (laughs) It's a skirt lifter. A skirt lifter was from the Victorian era. And it it was a little antique piece that he saw uh, in the New Yorker magazine advertised. And it's a little clip that the Victorian ladies with their big long skirts you would clip it to the bottom of your skirt so when you had to walk across a, a puddle or walk across the street you would um, it was hooked to a little string that went up on the side and you would just gently lift up your skirt and he, he called it a little conceit and I just thought it was the most charming thing you know it, it absolutely <laughs> unusable but it was do you still have it? Oh, yeah. I have everything. I love I that. I, I would assume you, you've really made sure to maintain everything. I mean, this is a treasure trove of, of history and stories. And Well, I'm still finding things because uh, I had to move after he died, and I put everything into boxes. And so I'm still unpacking boxes. If you come to my house, it's still uh, – it's a process that's uh, – it's it's wonderful, but it's also kind of tricky sometimes because you open up the box and and uh, for example, I found the note that he left me on the day we got married, and mm-hmm. and so I'm so happy to have it, and yeah, it's it's a powerful piece. So I, I'm still going through it, and and the things that I wrote every day about us, I never really assumed would be part of the story. I kind of thought he's the story, and. But what I'm finding is that people want to know what his daily life was like and what our life was like. And so I have all of that. I just have to spend a little more time in the archives sorting it out. That's exciting, though, because I I think that is we have this image of who he was on screen. um, But the man, you know, on an average day, what was he doing? What was he eating? Like, that is something that I think a lot of people love to know now, especially we're we're in an age where like information is everywhere. It's just right out there. And you have all of that information. That's why you're the gatekeeper. Well, it was so funny because when he first brought me out here to ask me if I would write his story, I didn't know. He just said he had some writing projects and asked me to come out. And so I came out and never expecting that he would ask me to help him. And uh, the World Series, the 
precursor of the World Series was on television. He loved baseball. And so I, I didn't know what we would do. I didn't know if we would go out to dinner. I didn't know what we would do. But we ended up, I boiled hot dogs, weenies, as he called them. <laughs> I boiled hot dogs, and he liked them uh, with that pure American yellow French mustard. And <laughs> and so, and, and then the next night we had... Um, uh, what a chicken pot pies in in the toaster oven, and he he had a certain way <laughs> you were supposed to cook them in there, and the way you were supposed to flip them over, and it just cracked me up. I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. I so here I am boiling hot dogs in Gene Kelly's house, and having no idea really of the magnitude of that. I was pretty naive. It wasn't my world out here, and 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 then we went in to watch baseball, and. Um, I was never had never really dedicated my life to baseball. I'd played it as a kid, but he sat there and then talked about the connection between classical ballet and baseball and that the movements are essentially mm. the same and the timing is the same and the patterns and things. And so I began to look at baseball in a very different way. Now I'm going to look at baseball in a different way. I never even thought about that. Um, because I just sit there and I always think it's a bunch of guys waiting for a ball to get hit and hopefully make it to the outfield. But... No, he saw it as balletic. And same with, uh, so he thought there was, uh, he, he wanted to be shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And that was one of his uh, childhood goals. But for football, too, he said there was nothing as beautiful as a forward pass. And in baseball, nothing as beautiful as a double play. And it was grace in motion and grace. And what he saw in athletics, because when he's, trying to figure out he wants to create a particularly american style of dance so he looks around well how does the american male move there's no model for that so he he looked to the things that he knew which were sports and it's hockey and baseball and if you look at his dance it's very broad wide open strokes and very low to the ground and if you look at his hockey it's that um and same with baseball and so he decided to create a dance based on this graceful athleticism that he so admired and and then to connect it to the American popular song that he loved of Cole Porter and George Gershwin and Ira Gershwin. And That's why it appealed to so many people, too, that, that type of movement, because they're probably not even realizing what I love in sports, I'm now loving in dance. I think that's why men um, really... Uh, were attracted to him in the sense that he was very relatable, very accessible. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody, I get so many comments on the Facebook page that people look at it and they think they can do what, what he does. They, of course, realize they can't necessarily. <laughs> he makes it look easy, But though. it does. He makes it look easy. And, it, and he said it was very hard to make it look easy because you have to, you have to create it and design it very differently to make it look so, so effortless. I, that is so true. And, you know, one thing I, I want to talk about, because we were talking about this earlier, was Moses Supposes, because um, often having, you know, a male duet or a male trio tap so rare in 2018 and i feel sometimes we're losing the art of tap we're not getting it out to uh the masses and the mainstream the way we used to and this is such a wonderful piece to sort of talk about too so i'm gonna if you can uh play the moses supposes that would be amazing well, and we this can... this was interesting because gene said gene had a hard time watching his own movies, but I made him do it for our work. But he would always see something he could have done better, and he'd cringe with some things. But he did say that he thought 
Moses supposes was the best tap number that he ever did on really on film, and it's it's great because when you watch them and for people dancers watching, Gene turns left naturally, and fortunately Donald O'Connor turned left naturally, <sighs> and it would have been very very hard if neither had. And I went, I flew to Texas. Um, to introducing in the rain with Sucharis, and I went with Donald O'Connor's wife, and and uh, Gloria O'Connor said to me, she said, "Watch, watch Moses supposes." She said, "Watch how Donald is looking over to check Jean," and I'd never noticed that before, and now I can't, of course, watch it without. Seeing oh, it. I'm going to have to go and watch that myself because I'm a left turner naturally too as a dancer, and it's it's tough when they're like okay it's everything's a right turn and you're just like that's my weak side i'm gonna be able to get through but i love that you have two men who are um left turners on this and then you have gene to to give a little credit to the great donald o'connor um people don't realize that donald created a lot of this scene just by improvisation so when gene was delivering these lines then donald just started making these funny faces and breaking Gene up. Gene is, Gene, you could see him start to crack up. He's laughing. And so Gene just put that into the scene, but then Donald just played on it too. So I love that. And um, did they have a natural friendship to off screen? Was it something between Donald and, and Gene? Uh, very much so. I think um, obviously Gene was an older, older figure and had a broader style of dance. Donald had grown up in the, as a, in the trunk, essentially he'd always performed but they they definitely got along, and there's there's a lot of humor, and you see it. Gene he did a television special with Carol Lawrence and Donald, and and again you see you see Gene just kind of he's just looking down because it's live, and and so he's cracking up. So uh-huh. I, I I love that. I love seeing those things where you you'll see it with Gene and Phil Silvers also in Cover Girl, and Phil had the same. They, these were just. These were comedians like you just don't see very often. They just, uh, Gene thought Donald was one of the greatest improvisational comedians of all time, and Phil Silver's just one of the greatest comics. And 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 it's, so it's fun to see these boys breaking up. I love that too. And, and for anyone who has not seen this film, because I'm sure there's someone out there that hasn't. Even if you just even grab snippets, uh, in you know, in addition to this um, interview right now. Donald O'Connor's Make Him Laugh mm-hmm. is, uh, to me, watching his movement, the fluidity of the way he throws his body around is the greatest. I don't I don't know if anyone rivals something like that with the, the comedic type of dancing he does. Well, you've got some traditions there with Buster Keaton and uh, different lines that he obviously adapted. Mm-hmm. But th- interestingly, that number, and you'll read other accounts of this, but the I have the account from Gene is that Donald, there's always so much, for the people who are in film, there's always so much time that you just are hanging around the set Mm -hmm. waiting for the lights to be set. And particularly back then, the lights were very, very hot and would often, the bulbs would blow and they'd have to add more rain water and things like that. And so what what Donald would do is he would pick up anything on around the set and start playing with it and start to entertain Gene's assistants who were 
Carol Haney, who later went on to become very famous in Pajama Game, mm-hmm. and Jeannie Coyne, who went on to become Jean's second wife. Um, and, and so Jean, the next day, people would come in and they'd go, Donald, do what you did yesterday, that really funny thing. And he'd go, I don't know what I did. And so Jean put Carol and Jeannie with Donald to write down everything Donald was doing. So they just wrote it down in a shorthand, and Jean took all the segments, um, got the piece of music, um, uh, and then basically choreographed that number, and then what he needed was the was the ending. And Donald, by that point, had lost um, he, the confidence to do the flips, mm-hmm. and so they brought his brother in to practice with him so he could regain the confidence for that. That's so. fascinating. But it, he didn't go to the hospital. It, he did say he went to the hospital, and he was in bed for three days. Actually, he went to another stage and rehearsed another number, but it... You know, it's a good story. Well, there's a lot of urban legends around singing in the rain. We've been talking about this. Let's talk about the big one with the rain, because what a lot of people know is not true. Unfortunately, with with both uh, Singing in the Rain and American in Paris, there's just so much mythology about the making of the movies. But yes, you'll hear very often, you still hear it. I keep trying to bust it out. but Let's bust it out they, here. <laughs> yeah, bust the myth uh, that they're, they put milk in the water so that you could see the raindrops. And there's no milk in the water. It's really terrific cinematography and lighting. And if you notice, when people watch the scene of the iconic Singing in the Rain number, Gene is dancing along in front of plate glass windows. And so the the team had a very difficult job Mm -hmm. because they have to backlight that rain. And the way I explain it is if you ever go to a sports event and you're sitting there, it starts to rain. If you look down at the field, you don't necessarily even see the raindrops. But if you tilt your head up, you see the rain against the stadium lights. Mm -hmm. So that was the job. That's what they had to do, which is great in a stadium. But they had to make sure that that they lit the rain from behind and didn't show the equipment reflected in the glass. And they had to show Gene lit from the front. And there are a couple uh, in the production notes it will say, they had to do another take because you could see the stuff reflected. But it's it's terrific. But you did, they didn't put milk in it. To make it. Was he ill during the, the filming of this? There's a rumor that he was had like a fever. That one is true. That's mm-hmm. one of the few things that's true. He did have a uh, temperature for about 103, 104. <sighs> and you have to remember, he's behind the camera and... He's directing and choreographing, and uh, I went around the U.S. with the great Rita Moreno for the mm-hmm. 60th anniversary of Singing in the Rain, and and she was she said she went on the set even though she has only a small role as Zelda in the movie. She said she went every day just to watch what he was doing, and she said he was in constant motion. He was behind the camera. He'd he'd set the the camera shots. He'd set the lights, and then he'd jump down and go change into costume and do do a take. And then what he would do is go outside. It was all shot here in Culver City, and it's all draped in black tarpaulin, and they had rain. Uh, the rain was hanging and rigging. And he would do the take, and then he'd go outside and lie on the sidewalk and bake the fever out of him and then come back in. <sighs> but she said he just he just didn't didn't stop moving. And the same, Leslie Caron said the same thing about American in Paris, that... Uh, somebody said, oh, well, it was Vincent Minnelli behind the camera. And she'd go, no, it was Gene Kelly. Um, he was doing all the all the, the heavy lifting, yeah, probably. I, I mean, Vincent Minnelli was in, amazing, but particularly in the American Paris Ballet, Gene is the name director of that. And 
And you'll see great shots of the two of them. They obviously were in collaboration with everything, but Jean Jean did know how to set those things up. And, and then Manelli had a terrific sense of detail. He would come over and just move something with just a few inches. and It would make a difference, though. It made a huge it difference. It made a huge difference. Um, the other thing about Singing in the Rain, um, his suit in this particular scene. Is it true that the wool was constantly shrinking? This is another urban myth. Right. All right, let's bust it. That's No, the, there's all kind of mythology about the suit, and Gene would lose about 10 pounds every time he did a, a number. The it was He would have to eat chocolate bars and things just to kind of replenish... Uh, his weight and um, but no so sometimes they would have to take the suit in in order to for the the, accommodate the weight loss and he was always uh, going in and having you you don't notice it overtly but he had his pants cut in very tight on his hips and Mm -hmm. on his thighs and is usually as often as possible is wearing a a very tight t-shirt or tight polo shirt and it's all to show the long line of his body. So he's he's trying to make sure he's still in character, but he's essentially wearing the closest thing to a ballet leotard that he can wear. In Singing in the Rain, it's a period piece, so he had to wear the suit. But any opportunity he can get, he's usually taking that off. And the, <laughs> for example, in the um, in Broadway Melody in in Singing in the Rain, it looks like he's wearing a three piece outfit with mm-hmm. the yellow vest and the bla- the shirt and pants. It's actually one piece so that when he extends his arm and does these really athletic numbers, th- his shirt doesn't come untied. You don't want it riding up or anything else like that. That's incredible. Those are little tricks, though. Those are wardrobe tricks that um, make a huge difference, especially for dancers. Right. And he was really hip to all of that, which is interesting because he's not only was he hip to his costume and what made him look well was he would go in with the women and they at this time the censors are coming onto the sets and they're measuring the skirt lengths mm. res- measuring the decolletage and and so Jean would let the woman come in from the censor office and and he'd let her do her measurements and everything. And then the minute she left, then he would slit the skirt so that it. you could have. Otherwise, you don't have Sid Charisse's leg, uh, the extension that you don't you want need. it stopped at 45 degrees. You no. want it to go as high Full as possible. Extension, so. And it's funny because you look at this and it seems so modest to us in, in 2018. But they, the women look elegant. They look beautiful. And they still look sexy. Very sexy. I mean, that... The number with Sid in the green dress is just... Right up there. I mean, come on. And she's modeled after Jean had a childhood crush on the great actress Louise Brooks. So he modeled her after that with the black bobbed hair. Which I love. And the dance and everything. And so it's a... Yeah, it's very hot and and still is, and people love it. I mean, it just, again, it holds up. It certainly does. And we were talking about him. We promised, if you saw my Instagram story, um, we have... His sneakers here. His chucks. I love this. Yes. This is, I mean, there, this one's a little worn here on the edge. <laughs> he would. He wore these to death. So, uh, But I loved it. And he was wearing these way before people were lining up to buy them because they were cool. He just he just loved the look of it. He loved – he would wear them. Uh, sometimes when we would go out to dinner, he had them on. And he wore them. There's a great shot of him directing Hello, Dolly, the parade scene. <sighs> He's got these on. So, he does. Yeah, so – well, and it's so funny, too, because sneakers now are kind of very commonplace in dance, um, often more so than, I think, actual dance shoes sometimes. If you look at what's happening in hip-hop, 
they're all in sneakers. They're not dancing in jazz shoes anymore. So I love that, you know, you sit there and you think, oh, it's a, it's an, a contemporary idea. Again, Gene, yeah. way ahead of the curve. Well, no, and it was so funny because uh, when Michael Jackson died, it was so interesting that the account said that he was the first to wear white socks and black loafers. And if you look at American Paris, you know, you see Gene. And that's what he wore. And somebody said, you'll often read another myth that they say that he wore white socks to so you could see his feet better. And he said, no, I just thought it was nerdy to wear black socks. So... <laughs> And I know, and then somehow the myth of like black shoes and white socks became nerdy too. But it's classic. It's just great. And he, you know, the cap he's wearing, navy caps and marine caps and sweaters tied around his neck. And uh, and then, he, you know, again, he was just, he was influencing style. He was influencing dance and choreography. And But you look Cinematography. at Cinematography. Yeah, definitely. I, now, I know, um, and I don't think this is an urban myth, but I'm going to have you uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this. Michael Jackson, obviously a huge fan of Gene Kelly. We know that. Did they have a project that didn't wind up working out? Because this is kind of a great sadness if I think about this, that it didn't pan out. They did. Um, and it's... Michael adored Gene, and and uh, Gene. It was vice versa. It was a great mutual regard. Gene went on the set to watch Michael, and we went to Michael's house uh, because Gene did want to do a musical with Michael. And you went to Neverland Ranch. We went to the first one on Havenhurst. Havenhurst in Encino. Okay, right. And but they had the the animals were there and the pinball machines. And <laughs> everything. The Jacksons it's, are still in that house. Right. Right. Yeah. It's it was it was quite an experience. It's um, but Michael. I think what the thing for me that stayed with me the longest was the fact that. Michael had memorized everything Gene did. I mean, memorized it down to the detail. And these were very obscure television specials that most people didn't have access to at that time. And obviously, as a a young man, little boy, he had memorized it, even to the idea of cocking the hat, which Gene, of course, borrowed from people like Bill Robinson and people who preceded him. So you do see this long chain. Gene always acknowledged that things didn't start with him. He started a new type of American dance, but he pulled from uh, great the great African-American dancers, um, Bill Robinson, Bojangles, um, and from dancing Dotson and King King and King, and from Douglas Fairbanks mm. and Lon Chaney and it's this amassing. Gene was like a big sponge. Uh, he just picked up everything, and he felt like he needed to study every form of dance. And Michael was very similar to that. It was this just absorption of of information, and he he carried that on. But I sadly, I think it it um, I think Michael was making way too much money for way too many people to to. You know, it was interesting. It was kind of ageism I think at that time that in a sense they didn't think that Gene at that age could come up with something that would be contemporary instead of thinking well Gene is way ahead of his time and it would have been a really uh, amazing thing and it was it was going to be Frankie and Johnny so my gosh and I I just to me because I I grew up in the the Michael Jackson era and I just sit there and I think what could have been what could have been honestly I think it would have taken Michael to a different... Mike, that's what Gene said to him when we were having dinner. He said, look, Michael, you've got the world in the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. You can do anything. So 
do something different, break break new ground, do something else. You know, but it's that's hard to do. That's hard to do when you have managers and people just pulling and everybody and money. Money factors into all of this. It's yeah. very expensive to do a musical and take a risk at doing something new. Well, and I think also, too, um, knowing Michael's story now at sort of the bigger scope of, of what all happened and how it all played out, too. I, there was nobody um, really looking after Michael. And, you know, he didn't get to do those artistic projects all the time. He had to do oftentimes the, the money projects first. So it's a hard, tough business. As Jean <sighs> said, so dance tough. is a masochistic sport. And it's, <laughs> and it's hard on your body, your body. Now, he always said that your instrument is your body, and when you really are beginning to understand your art form, your body is already in decline. It's so. starting to break down, yeah, yeah I know. For men especially. So <sighs> and he was pretty lucky that he got to do it. He he retired at a point. He said, when I could no longer jump over those tables the way I used to be able to, he said, I stopped because I wanted people to remember how I was and not... Um, you know, it's interesting. We're talking about making musicals, but uh, I had a, a funny evening. We're talking about funny evenings with people of the Mandy Moore and Damien Chazelle from La La, La, La Land. Land. Uh, Damien, I had met Damien, the director of La La Land, at, at a French uh, gathering, a con- French consulate. And I gave him my card, and, and he about fell over. He, of course, loved Gene's movies. Mm-hmm. and had, again, like a sponge, had incorporated a lot of those into his work and his mind and heart, I think. And so I said, well, you should come by and see the archives sometime. I'd really like to show it to you. And he was off doing things, and I thought, well, I guess I'm not going to hear from him. And then I got this note, and he wrote to me, and he said, "Are are you you still... Would it be okay if I come over? Is the invitation open? Yeah, is it still open? I said, yeah, sure, that'd be great. And I said, and if anybody, you want to bring anybody else? So then I get this note. She said, do you mind if um, the choreographer Mandy Moore comes? And I love Mandy. and, and We friends. all love Mandy. Yeah. So I said, no, that's great. And he said, then he wrote again, do you mind if a couple other people come? I'm like, no, that's fine. And he said, well, do you mind if Ryan Gosling comes? I'm like, no, I don't want Ryan to come. No, Ryan. Oh, come <laughs> on. I know he's so handsome. And then Emma Stone. And so it Lovely was, as well. Yeah, it was great. And it was really, I mean, I have to say Ryan came to the house with the most memorable house gift I've ever received, which was a 25-pound apple pie and a quart of vanilla ice cream. But he came with this. It was like in a hat box, and it it was just stunning. And I think we got it down to about 23 pounds. But it was (laughs) – he's just – he's exactly what you see on screen and lovely, lovely guy and Emma Stone as well. And they were very gracious and very respectful and – it was funny because I would leave them in the archives and, and they were very serious and very sedate. And then I'd go in and, and work on dinner and, I'd, and then I'd come back in. And meanwhile, they're in there. As in in uh, Ryan's term, they were geeking out and looking at Singing in the Rain, at Gene's handwriting for choreographing Singing in the Rain and things. So, Unbelievable. So, but, so it's... It just goes on and on. And it I does. Think, you know, you, you were talking about the legacy before, and Gene's legacy will keep going whether I'm around or not. But I just love to kind of accelerate it in some sense and bring more of these young people in and let them see, really understand Gene's thinking about why he did what he did and how he did it yeah. and the way he felt about it, the passion that he had. And for young people trying to decide, you know, a lot of people are discouraged from pursuing careers in the arts, especially with the economy. And, and 
they're they're looking to i mean Gene couldn't imagine doing being passionate about his work and setting a standard that is this high and so I just kind of try to keep that going out there to as many people as possible. Well, you're doing a wonderful job of it. Um, I know I have a couple fan questions I do want to get to because we're going to run out of time, believe it or not. But um, one thing I want to ask, and I think I know the answer to this, but I know a lot of people have kept their eyes on it. And Derek Huff was attached to the Broadway revival of Singing in the Rain. And if people didn't know, Harvey Weinstein was supposed to be producing it. So I, I think that you know, that got tied up in that horrible mess. Um, is there any sort of updated status on this? Is someone else looking at it? Do you know anything? Well, it's interesting. I haven't hadn't thought about that for a while since it was kind of tabled. And um, I don't know, and I haven't seen... I saw Derek do his show with, um, with his sister, which was great, but yes. I, I haven't seen them since that. But I, yeah, I don't know. And the interesting thing is I, Gene had no rights to any of that. So oh, that's all governed um, elsewhere. But... Um, you know, Derek is again a great. These guys, these there's so many. So you know, much when talent. You, when you have Derek and you have Travis Wall and you have all these Mandy Moore and yeah, amazing young people out there. And what I, what I love about them is that they do have a regard for what came before. So they're very respectful of that. Instead of just going, oh yeah, I'm I'm the hottest new thing. It's very much they're very almost reverential about what preceded and wanting to make sure that they honor it. And so I, I, I appreciate that because that's, that's it's so a something. big deal. And, and Derek is one that I appreciate on world of dance. Cause he always talks about the art of, um, of tap. And I think sometimes tap gets lost in the shuffle. And I think it's really important that we continue to talk about tap and bring tap to the forefront. And when you watch a movie like singing in the rain, it gets kind of a second class kind of standing, which yep. is which is interesting because the the precision required to do it well is is amazing and the beauty of it. Um, and you know, Gene learned from you know studying someone like Bojangles and how the kind of precision and clarity of the tap is what what stuck out for him. So important. Um, a couple fan questions because some of these are so good, and I love this. Um, Rotor one three four. This was from Instagram. Um, they asked, "Would you ever want a Gene Kelly movie to be made, and what actor would you think would do justice to him?" Uh, it's a good question. I get it all the time because uh, I think there are so many of these biopics being done, and everybody mm-hmm. uh, is constantly asking about that. The current wave <clears throat> trend, right. I feel it's like, in very yes. Uh, the one thing Gene was very specific that he did not want done was a movie about him, a <gasps> biopic. So really, so I've honored that. That yeah, he didn't. We would watch them, and he would kind of cringe because. He would know the person, or he would, um, and I, you know, I've got to say, it's a number one. The, the the information about his life out there is not accurate, so it would mm-hmm. be hard to kind of put that together at this point. Um, but um, I, I, it's a hard; those are hard shoes to fill. They I think. Are. I think with singers, it's a little bit easier. I think you can somehow. I think. Sometimes you may be able to pull that off, but I think that with Gene, and again, it's that kind of it quality that you just don't, um, you know, what I think is what he wanted was people not to really imitate him or be him, but he wanted people to take what he did and take it beyond. And so 
when you see uh, people like Torval and Dean on ice um, doing bolero and remarkable things and homages to Gene, and you see Kurt Browning doing that, and you see a Hugh Jackman doing a piece in his autobiography about being a kid growing up in Australia and with watching the VHS tapes of Gene and things. Um, I think those, and then doing his own version of a kind of singing in the rain. I think that, I think those are really charming and, and, Again, each person adds some their own thing to it, and it yeah, because you're not going to be the next Gene Kelly. You have to be your own version right. of who you are, and it's okay to take elements from the past, and that's Absolutely. honoring those who came before. All right, Hannah had a ton of questions, <laughs> and I thought some of them were um, so good. She had asked about the urban legends, um, but I love this question that Hannah asked: What did Gene Kelly consider his greatest accomplishment in his professional career? That's a that's a great question, Hannah. It's um, he was he found it very hard to talk about his accomplishments. It was something in particular you would hear him in interviews. He would kind of shuffle about that. And I found that when I put the tape recorder down and we watched a movie together, as I said, he would usually cringe through most of it and see, oh, I did my leg wasn't in a perfect um, ballet position or something. and but I must say that when we watched the American in Paris ballet, he mm. was said, I'm very proud of that. And, and I think he felt that that nobody else could have done that. And so and he would see things like the roller skating number that he thought was the best song that he ever see, executed. Well, no, actually. Um, oh, in American it, in Paris. Uh, the one in It's Always Fair Weather when he tap dances on the roller skates, but he's also singing uh, the Andre Previn song. So I, I think he had favorites of what he did. I think he um, always, you know, what he was trying to do was strive for this mark of, and you'll hear him described as a perfectionist, and it drove him crazy because he said, what professional isn't? You know, wh- mm-hmm. why would you not be? Why would you not be on time? Why would you not try to hit every mark? And People, animators really understand him, choreographers understand him, and dancers, because if you miss that mark, then the camera is gone, gone, you redo it, and that's a lot of time and money. And so I guess his, I, I, what he would say, I think, and, but he found it hard to say about himself was that he changed the look of dance on film, and he would like to be remembered for that achievement. And, and that's an incredible legacy, too. And I think everyone will always try to aim for his perfection and aim for his talent. Um, and people bring it in, in new and different ways. But I think, I mean, that, that aspect of his legacy is a, it's a very big and enduring thing. It is. And I think for young people to have that as a mark that you don't, you don't go for here. You, this is where you are. That's right. Aim high. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, we have to wrap up, and I knew we were going to run out of time. So I, I'm going to make you promise on camera to all of us <laughs> that you will come back. Oh, I'd be back in, in a heartbeat. Okay, this was great. so much fun. This Thank you. This was so great, and I'm so glad it worked out. And as I told people, I'm like, we have so many films that we can go and uh, check out, of course, and you will be performing 
this Saturday, October 6th at the Torrance Cultural Arts Center. Yes. And there's two shows, so 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. We are giving away a set of tickets, 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. It's in Southern California, obviously. We are not flying you guys here. You'll have to get yourself here. But um, we will do this giveaway. Um, I'm going to post a photo on my Instagram account. We'll give you the rules. We're going to make it really simple. And uh, we'll know who the winners are by tomorrow. So um, hopefully you guys will go and uh, go see the show because I really just admire what you're doing. I just think it's so important for uh, the entire dance industry. Well, thank you. And it's, and I do, I come out and I greet everybody as they come into the theater. So I'll be out there saying hello. And then I stay after as long as anybody wants, because for me, it's not a show. I don't sing and dance. I weave these stories in between these beautiful film clips. And then Gene used to sing to me at night. That was one of the ways that he revealed some of the most intimate parts of his life. So these incredible recordings of him. And so it's, I, it's really an experience. It's a very personal thing, and the audience is as much part of that as, as what I'm doing up there. So I look forward to seeing everybody. That is wonderful. And thank and you. Thank you so much. Where can everyone follow you, learn more? Because her, your Instagram account is fantastic. You always put up um, archival photos and give little stories. I love it. Thank you. It's uh, Gene Kelly Legacy, and then Facebook, Gene Kelly The Legacy. So it'd be great. Sick. All right. Thank you so much, Patricia. And we want to thank all of you for joining us here at To The Point. We want to thank Dance Network and Popcorn Talk. And I will let you guys know that I am pre-taping next week's episode. I have to head to Philadelphia uh, for work, but it's going to be one of the kid pros from Dancing with the Stars Junior. So we're going from dance history to uh, a show that's premiering on Sunday, October 7th. All right, you guys, we will see you soon. Be sure to check out all the latest dance news on dancenetwork.tv. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals. Oh, yeah.